Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org. And now a message from The Rock of Gainesville. Today we are wrapping up the third and final installment of our current sermon series titled The Struggle and the Solution, A Survey of Sin and Savior. Um, Last week, in part two, I'm going to go ahead and just recap it for a moment. Uh, We looked at the very real and sobering reality of sin. Through a closer look at the final chapter in David's life, we were reminded that the power of temptation exists even in the life of the most mature, godly, and successful believer. We saw that when God grants us success, even continued excuse me, continued success, especially continued success, it's easy to be tempted to think that we can do no wrong. We also saw the damage and the pain that David's sin created in his life even to his own family. We noted how tragic it was to see his own sins being reproduced in the lives of his children. We noted that through David's preserved full story in the scripture, God warns us today. He warns us today of the power of temptation and he uses it to heighten our sense of horror towards sin. Amen? And then thankfully, we long for the mercy of God in David's story, and we saw that through that prophetic promise of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who would ultimately come through the Davidic line. We noted that Jesus, unlike David, is the one who withstood temptation, lived perfectly without sin, and sacrificed his own life for the life of many. We walked away encouraged to know that sin does not have to have the last word. Amen? Amen. Jesus has conquered sin. And we were also reminded that we cannot, we cannot be afraid to say the word sin in a world that desperately tries to cover it up at every turn. So if I had to summarize last week's message into one word, I would select this word, awareness, awareness. The last chapter of David's life brought, to us, brought us to a place of greater awareness, greater sensitivity to the power and the destruction of sin. And also, it made us aware of the wonderful reminder that God has made a way for you and I. So here's our driving question for today. How do we move from awareness in the struggle to joy in the solution? That's what we're going to take a look at today. It's a practical word that I pray encourages you. Actually, let me go ahead and just pray now. Father, in Jesus' name, we are here because of you. We treasure your word. We hold it in high esteem and in high regard. We declare your word speaks life to us. And so we position our hearts now to receive whatever your Holy Spirit would have to say to us today. We pray, God, that you would speak, speak for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right. So I believe that there are three observations that we can make in God's redemptive work in David's last last days. So we're not done with David yet. So I hope this is encouraging for you. Let me go ahead and set the stage for the observations that we're going to make by first presenting to you the moment when David's sin was exposed to him. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, it's the chapter after the one that we heavily focused on last week. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read about God sending Nathan the prophet to David the king to tell him this allegorical story. Now an allegory is a story or a poem or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. 
especially a political one, or as it was in this instance, a moral one. Now, David, um, excuse me, Nathan goes on and tells David this story about a rich man who had more than plenty, okay? And also about a poor man who only had this little lamb that he desperately loved and was deeply devoted to. Anyways, the rich man ultimately entertains a guest. And instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep or cattle, he takes the poor man's little sheep and prepares it for his guest. The story infuriates David. And he immediately wants justice executed against the rich man. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, at the beginning of verse 7, the prophet turns the story around on David and says, you're the man that has plenty, and you took something that didn't belong to you. Nathan, the prophet, says these very words. You are that man. Nathan, the prophet, continued the revelation of God's word to David in verses 9 and 10 by saying, Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. And that brings us to the first of three observations that we're going to make in David's season of redemption. First up, humility. Humility. Last week I mentioned that God will not allow the truth to remain hidden. I mentioned that it doesn't matter if you're a successful man, a blessed man, a leader among leaders. If you take up the pattern of the world, as opposed to taking up the pattern of God's word, the inevitable future of some area of carved out compromise in your life will be a bleak one. We saw that David tried multiple times to cover up his sin and likely thought that at one point he was successful. But as we learn, God was displeased displeased with what David had done. And hear me, church, that was enough. That was enough to completely and entirely unravel that false sense of protection that David had. We know now that God is telling this court prophet to go and tell David this story to rouse this sense of justice only to expose David as the perpetrator. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why? I believe, I believe that God is doing this, as he's done to those of us who are saved, is that God wanted to pierce through the darkness of David's sin so precisely even through some made-up civil issue brought to him by one of his advisors, to unquestionably hold David's attention and proclaim this one undying truth. David, I know, and I still love you. Let that sink in. Because Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, says it this way. For the Lord corrects those he loves. He corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. Listen. You have to know that the only reason God would ever call out your sin is because he loves you. He loves you. Listen, being exposed and convicted, however troubling, 
however shocking, however alarming, however disruptive that might be to your current sinful state, you have to know that that is 100% an act of love from God to you. It's an act of love. That's why we love him, because he first loved us. We worship him because we are ill-deserving. Not undeserving, we are ill-deserving of his glorious and transformative love. So, in this love-fueled moment of awareness that God brings David to, it shatters the dark and sinful chains that kept David bound. And he drops in humility to his knees. Isaiah 57, 15. God, the Holy One, says to those whom he bestows the grace of his own words, the necessity of humility. It reads in verse 15, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the Holy One, says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. God lives in a holy place with those who are contrite and humble. If you don't know what the word contrite means, let me provide you the definition. Contrite means a feeling of showing sorrow and remorse for a sin or a shortcoming. In other words, to be in a state of contrition, you have to feel the weight of your unholy sin before a holy God. You have to feel it. We have to have utter remorse for it because God is holy. Oftentimes we forget that. We don't see that. We ignore it. And I pray that we would never let it go. There's a benefit to not letting it go. We're, we're going to see that in a moment. So David, after being exposed, was contrite. He felt the weight of what he had done. And now, filled with sorrow and remorse, he immediately humbled himself before God and said this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the verse part of verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. These words are incredibly important, but this is humility. Humility. He finally surrenders and confesses. There's no more strength, no more trying to spin plates, no more trying to keep all these falsehoods together. There's only brokenness. David, with a contrite heart, feeling the weight of his sin, dropped to his knees in humility before God. And it's at this, it's at this point in David's life as he welcomed this cleansing work of God taking place in his own heart and in his own mind where he penned the famous Psalm 51. I want to camp in Psalm 51 for just a moment before we go to our next observation. So if you have your Bible, you'll notice that above Psalm 51, there's this very specific, humble, and surrendered heading. For those of you who have seen David in the Psalms, you have to keep in mind that sometimes when he writes about himself in the Psalms, he refers to himself in the third person. But at the top of Psalm 51, the heading above Psalm 51, it says this, for the choir director. Now let me give you a little side note there, okay? Some psalms are personal psalms, a psalm of David, a psalm of Asaph, right? But some psalms are corporate psalms for the nation of Israel. 
So when you see something like this for the choir director, this was going to be public knowledge. Actually, the entire nation was going to sing this song. So knowing that it's a corporate song, listen to how David wrote it. A Psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Super clear. I mean, it was honest and humble. Now, this psalm has served the church as a pattern for confessing sin or expressing sorrow and repentance to God. And I want to go through a handful of verses in order to equip you, to equip us to know how to truly and humbly express sorrow and repentance before God. Because sometimes, I'm sorry is not enough of a picture. So I want you to hear, okay? You know, we think of I'm sorry. But David wrote 19 verses on the subject. And we're only going to look at a handful of them. So let's start with verse 1. When you are confessing your sins and you are in a season of repentance, first up, I want you to appeal. I encourage you to appeal to God's mercy. It says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Appeal to God's mercy. Secondly, in verse 2, acknowledge your sin. That's right. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Get specific with the Lord. Get specific with him. Acknowledge your sin. Next point in verse 3 and 4, avoid defending your sin. We're talking real repentance here, okay? Avoid defending your sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me. Day and night. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. I want you to notice that he acknowledges God three times in that one verse. Verse 4. He acknowledges God three times in that one sentence. He says, against God alone I have sinned. Against you, Lord. He didn't say against Uriah I have sinned. He didn't say against Bathsheba I have sinned. He said against you alone, God, have I sinned. Because who is Uriah but the man God created? And who is Bathsheba but the daughter God created? I have sinned against you alone. Ultimately, we sin against God. So determine that you will not defend your sin before the all-knowing creator of all things. Because hear me, defending your sin will haunt you. It'll haunt you. Next point, look to Jesus, verse 7. David wrote, purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. In the the original Hebrew there, David wrote for that phrase, purify me of my sins. He wrote, purge me with the hyssop branch. See, hyssop branches are these leafy branches that were used by Levitical priests during ceremonial rites to sprinkle water or blood during one of their ceremonies. And actually, uh, they were used by the Jews in Egypt to sprinkle blood over the doorpost 
the blood of the lamb over the doorpost before God uh, decided to strike Egypt with that final plague, the spirit of death, so that when it came, it would pass over that particular household. So David, David knew the imagery behind the hyssop branch as it related to purification. And he didn't yet know that purification would ultimately come through Jesus, which is why we know that now. And so we look to Jesus for purification. Do you guys see that? Good. Next point. Verse 8. Ask God to heal you. Ask God to heal you. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. You see, in the restoration process, ask God to heal you. See, because brokenness is an appropriate response to our sin because our sin is an affront to God. And so therefore, conviction is painful. It breaks you in the best ways. And you're going to need healing. Actually, those around you might also need healing. Spurgeon, you know, my, one of my guys, uh, in commenting on, one of these, on this particular verse in, in Psalm uh, 51, David, uh, excuse me, Charles said uh, that in this moment of David's life, that blessed, weaked, excuse me, that blessed weakness in David's life, it taught him a heart music which only broken bones can learn. So beautifully said. See, the Bible says, he who is forgiven much loves much. So when God heals you, a song that defies containment rises up within you. And it's absolutely beautiful heart music. Raise your hand if you got a testimony. Look at all these beautiful songs. Next point. Verse 10 and 11. Call for the comfort and power of the Holy Spirit. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. If you're going to be successful in your repentance, you need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will help you stay humble. Call for him. Verse 12, next point. Commit and resolve to obey him. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and make me willing to obey you. This is how thorough our God is. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And every single step in between. Make me willing to obey you. We need God's grace even to obey. Ask for it. Receive it. Activate it. That's why. That's how God gets all the glory. That's how God gets all the glory. Next thought. Verse 13. Without shame... Share your testimony. Come on, church. Then I will teach your ways to rebels. And they will return to you. The Bible says that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. testimony. All right. There is God-glorifying, joy-inducing, confidence-building, ministering-enabling power in our testimony. So share them. Share them. And last one, last one, last one. Worship him. You guys starting to see a picture of humility and repentance? Worship him. Verse 15, unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. That my mouth may praise you. Humbly before the Lord, worship him. This is an incredible list of how to humbly respond to the Lord, right? 
All of this humility has been modeled to us through David's redemption, and I, for one, am grateful for it. Let me recap them for you, because we went through those pretty quick. Appeal to God's mercy. Acknowledge your sin. Avoid defending your sin. Look to Jesus. Ask God to heal you. Call for the comfort and power of the Holy Spirit. Commit and resolve to obey him. Without shame, share your testimony and worship him. Powerful, powerful instructions for us through his word. Okay, next observation in David's redemption. Repentance. Repentance. And we already started to see some of this in Psalm 51. But how many of you know that when God speaks a command... When he speaks a command regarding something in your life, those very words are filled with the grace to do it. That's how thorough our God is. The very reality that God extends grace to you in the form of mercy and also extends grace to you in the form of the power needed to change is incredibly glorious. This is our God. And so we're going to create this other little list within repentance. We're going to look at the power in David's repentance. First up, generosity. Okay? In 2 Samuel chapter 19, David was on his way to uh, return and be king. And we notice in this chapter and other places as well that he returns to being a kind king to be more of a giver rather than a taker. He was generous. In his repentative state, he was generous. In chapter 19, uh, we see uh, another moment of kindness to Mephibosheth. He maintained kindness to him because one of uh, Mephibosheth's servants came and slandered his name to King David, and David dismissed that report and maintained his kindness to Mephibosheth. In that same chapter, he showed kindness to Barzillai, this wealthy, cute little old man that took care of David and his men when he was fleeing from Absalom's invasion. He took care of David and his men. He provided for them. And on his way back to Jerusalem to regain his throne, the little old man came out of his little town, came to watch King David in his procession walk over uh, across the Jordan, and David saw him, and he's like, hey, man, why don't you come with me to Jerusalem? I'll take care of you. He's like, oh, thank you, my king, but I'm old, and I just want to live the rest of my days out in my hometown. But why don't you take my son and do with him what you will? Give him what you want. He's like, deal. I'll take care of him. I'll provide for him. And listen to me. If you need anything, I'll provide anything you need for you too. Incredible generosity. David blessed this little old man, and I visualized him kissing him on his tiny little forehead. (laughs) I think the Bible said he was like 80-some plus years old, maybe nine. I don't know how old he was. But a cute little old man. My wife loves elderly people. She has a heart for them. I do too. So this was an incredible moment of kindness and generosity. So there's, a, there's something here for us if you're willing to see it. There's power in giving during a season of repentance. There's power in giving in a season of repentance. It speaks to like this release and this full surrender in the life of a believer as they continue to work out their salvation. It says... I'm not my own, Lord. I'm yours. I choose to hold on to nothing except you. It's beautiful. So like David, give. Because I I believe that when you give, when you are generous in a season of repentance, it's going to bring about greater and quicker healing in your life. Next little PowerPoint within repentance, priority. David used God's power to prioritize that which was first and right, which is God. It was no longer David first. It was God first. When David was fleeing Jerusalem because of Absalom's rebellious invasion, 
the high priest Zadok brought the ark of God, took it out of the tabernacle, brought the ark of God to David and his procession of followers. And when David saw this, now broken and humble, using God's power in his life to walk out his repentance, he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. The king instructed Zadok to take the ark of God back to the city. If the Lord sees fit, David said, he will bring me back to see the ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. Beautiful. It's no longer about David. It's about God. His priority now is God's will be done, not my own. This is a huge lesson for us in repentance. Actually, in fact, it also speaks against self-preservation. There are many believers. There are many believers, even while they are repenting, still hold a piece of something for themselves. Some of you need to hear this. Some of you do repentance-like things, but you still hold on to a piece of something for yourself. Consider this uh, example of worldly sorrow. I want to say I'm sorry to all my fans, all my followers, all my supporters, and to also protect my brand. Excuse me, excuse me. I just want to ask all of you to please keep buying my stuff. I mean, please pray, keep praying for my stuff. Gets resolved quickly. God bless. That's worldly sorrow. Look, I know... I was poking a little fun there. But is your sorry conditional like that? Instead of being complete? Complete. A complete sorry. Maybe your sorry includes one last prideful word to maintain your rightness. That's not full repentance. That's not full surrender. You are still making yourself the priority there. Listen, if in the wake of conviction, listen to my words, the wake of conviction, if there's a residue that it's still all about you, what you have, what you don't have, what you said, what you didn't say, what you did, what you didn't do, your image, if there's a residue of any of that, when God convicts you, you're a self-preservationist. And your priorities are all mixed up. And listen to me. Being humble and repentant is going to be extremely difficult for you. Very difficult. We need to own our mistakes and our wrongdoings, not defend them or excuse them away. Like David, we need to say, not my will be done, but yours, Lord. Do what you think is best. As a matter of fact, his words were kind of like an echo of the very words Jesus would speak in the garden. All right, one more little PowerPoint within repentance. Finality. Finally and lastly, David utilized God's power to finally close the door on the lust that brought him so much pain in his life. It was final. Now, this is the step of repentance that we as believers are most familiar with because 
It's absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. We have to close the door on past temptation pitfalls and finally put to death the sin that entangled us. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3, we read this in David's life. When David came to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to look after the palace and placed them in seclusion. This is how I visualize that. Uh, you, yeah, yeah, all of you, uh-huh, this way, mm-hmm, yep, uh, go in here, in here, please, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, all right, yep, last one, okay, and grab the door, boom. He closed the door. He closed the door. Their needs were provided for, but he no longer slept with them. So each of them lived like a widow until she died. See, David was not his own anymore. He allowed God to change him. He wasn't driven by selfish ambition or self-preservation. He was no longer a taker. He was generous. He clearly made God a priority in his life and in his last days, and that led him to finally close the door on sin. He surrendered it all, repented, and walked out his redemption. That is speaking to us today. All right, final observation, accountability, accountability. Our question for today has been how do we move from the awareness we find by God's grace in the struggle toward the joy in the solution? Accountability, hear me, is absolutely vital. Humility, repentance, and accountability. In the second to last chapter of 2 Samuel, we find this hall of fame of King David's mightiest warriors. This listing of men are those who fought valiantly for David and for Israel. Pastor George, this past Wednesday night, He told this story after uh, their church had received an offering, and he went up to his pastor and he said, Pastor, isn't God great? And he shared with us that his pastor replied, yes, but God's people aren't so bad either. See, in this chapter, we're going to read, or you can read, um, about David's closest men about the people around him. And it also recounts this one awesome, epic story that David's three mightiest warriors did for him. Now, they were, there were 37 mighty men. They were just referred to as the 30. But three of them were his mightiest warriors, kind of like a royal guard. And they were so fierce They were actually simply referred to as the three. Like, where is the movie script, right? Where is the movie script on these bad mamma jammas? I'd watch that. But listen to this story. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 13 to 17, once during the harvest when David was at the cave of Adullam, The Philistine army was camped in the valley of Rephaim. The three who were among the 30, an elite group among David's fighting men, went down to meet him there. David was staying in the stronghold at the time, and a Philistine detachment had occupied the town of Bethlehem. David remarked longingly to his men, Oh, how I would love some of that good water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew some water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem, and brought it back to David. But he refused to drink it. 
Instead, he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. The Lord forbid that I should drink this, he exclaimed. This water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. So David did not drink it. These are examples of the exploits of the three. Church, hear me. We all need friends like this. People in our lives who are so, so precious that we offer up praise of thanksgiving to God for their involvement and their inclusion in our lives. People who are willing to lay down their lives to see you walk in victory. We need people like that in our lives. That's true community. That's accountability. So when we're on our path away from sin, yes, we need humility. Yes, we need repentance. But we also need genuine accountability. I believe the point of this section of Scripture is that though David's victories were significant, they were not solely David's doing. He needed people in his life. David acknowledged that God was the real king of Israel and that it was God who really won their battles. But in this passage, God God provides clarity for that by saying he performed these victories through a team effort of mighty people in David's life. Even Uriah the Hittite, who David wronged and killed, is at the bottom of the list of these mighty warriors, thus being given tribute and credit in David's life. So valuable. So valuable. So here's something I'd like to do, if you would um, indulge me. There's a reality to accountability that I believe we all need to embrace. We need each other. We have not been called to walk this walk alone. Amen? Amen. And your walk is important to me, as I hope my walk is important to you. We're not called to walk alone. So just for a moment, I'd like to ask all the men to stand, please. Young to old. Men, I want you to look around. Don't look at me. Look around. Turn around. Face each other. You don't have to look at me. I want you to look at each other. Okay? Men, these are your brothers. These are your brothers. You may not actually be family, but spiritual family is just as real and oftentimes even more real. So I want you, I want to ask you men to take your hands out of your pocket. (laughs) I want you to assume this warrior stance as you look at one another. This is what I visualize as a warrior stance. Okay, be it what it may be, I, I like it. I want you guys to turn and connect eyes with one or two men, okay? Don't look at me, one or two men. Turn around, look at each other. These are your brothers, okay? And while you're assuming this warrior stance, I want you to repeat these words to each other. You follow me? All right, here we go. Brother, I need you to be mighty in God. I need you to be faithful to God's call on your life as a son. I need you to hold the line of God's standard. To fight sin like a victor, not like a victim. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit. I believe you can. can. I'm looking to you you. 
to be an example for me as you follow Christ. Hold me accountable as I will do the same for you. We're in this together. Much love and respect to you, my brother. Thank you. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, ladies, it's your turn. I don't know what a warrior stands for, a woman is. But if you want to do this, if you want to do this, oh, hands over your heart, you precious women of God, I want you to connect with one or two other women. And I want you to repeat these words to each other in all love. Sister, I need you to be mighty in God. I need you to be faithful to God's call on your life as a daughter. I need you to hold the line of God's standard to fight sin like a victor, not like a victim. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe you can. I'm looking to you to be an example for me as you follow Christ. Hold me accountable as I will do the same for you. We're in this together. I love you, my sister. Be seated. Wonderful, beautiful. Let's live it out. Let's live it out, yes. Let's live it out. Glory to God. Hallelujah. We bless you. All right, to wrap this up, here's how David's life finished. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, Verse 26 through 28. So David, son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. He reigned over Israel for 40 years, seven of them in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a ripe old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. Then his son Solomon ruled in his place. Redemption is a beautiful thing, amen? David was forgiven and preserved because our God is an incredible God. In confessing his sins, humbling himself, genuinely repenting, and surrounding himself with mighty men, David's words in Psalm 32 leave us with incredible hope. Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2, a psalm of David. It says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Hallelujah. Come on, let's worship Jesus. There's freedom there. There's freedom in Jesus here. And by grace through faith, we too can be made righteous. David was not always a great guy, but he belonged to a great God. David was not always faithful to God, but God was always faithful to him. David did not always do what was right. But God was gracious to always make it right. If we're honest, we're a lot like David. And we need Jesus just as much. So like I said last week, the struggle is real, but the solution is greater.
Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your indescribable involvement in our lives. It is such a reflection of your love. You pursue us so passionately, so thoroughly. God, we can't just, we can't help but just fall before you in worship. God, you look at every detail of our lives. Nothing is hidden from you. You care about it all. Not only do you convict us so that we can be made righteous in Christ, but you empower us to change, to mold us into the likeness of your son. Jesus, you are glorious forever. I don't know what else to say, but you're worthy of it all. We honor you in this place. We're so grateful for your word. It brings life to our souls. God, I pray that we would treasure your word above all else. God, I ask that every time you lead us by your spirit, whether we're busy, whether we're stressed, whether we're full of anxiety, every time by your grace that we make it to your word, God, I pray that you would keep our minds attention. God, that you would awaken our heart's affection for your word. God, help us to come to a place where we say, I love your word. It's a treasure. And I pray, God, that all of us would walk out of this place today confidently knowing that we have access to a beautiful treasure. Help us dig into it this week. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. If we need to confess something, expose it. Help us to be humble before you. Help us to repent of it. Help us to find some accountability and help us to walk in the victory that you have already provided for us. Because Lord, you are our champion. And we honor you today in this place in Jesus' mighty name. If you agree with that, let's lift up a shout. Lift up your voice to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's so good. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org.